Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. Okay, open your Bibles to John chapter 4, and we're going to start at verse 19. Once you get to John 4, go ahead and say, I'm there, or say amen, or something like that. Okay, so let me give you a little bit of lead-in to pick up where we left off, because we've been two weeks now in the Samaritan woman story. This is going to be the third week. Now, we left off with Jesus now pulling the Band-Aid off of her life when he says, go call your husband, come here. She's going to have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right, for you have had how many? Five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. In other words, you're living with a person is what you're doing right now. Now, we can look at that and say, well, or a person could look at that and say, how mean of Jesus to do something like that. It's not mean. He's not hurting her. He's doing this to heal her, to help her. Because in our life, one of the toughest things or one of the things we don't like, I guess, is to pull the Band-Aid off of our lives to expose parts of our life that just need to be fixed, right? It's not an easy thing to do. It's not easy for anyone to do that. But let me tell you where Jesus contrasts uh, our current culture, and that's this way. Um, In our culture today, uh, what they do is they go try to find everything about you that you did 87 million years ago, right? So that they can expose it and talk about it online and bring it up and share you're this, you're that, as if you're the same person now that you were 40 years ago. Or that 40 years ago really even matters anymore. But they do things like that. And I've always, anybody that brings that up to me, I always tell that person, and I hope you tell people this too, I said, look, if you want to expose someone's stuff and go online, social media, and expose someone's stuff, Here's what you do first. First, go online and you list all of your sins. List all of your sins and start with the worst of the worst. And put them all down there, last 10, last 20 years, put them all down. In fact, put the ones all the way, go back 40 years and put them all down if you're you're that old. Write them all down, put them there. And once you do all that and then you fix yourself, then you're free now to go and expose somebody else. Amen? Yeah, I mean, take the log out of your own eye. And then you're free to see, you could see clear enough now to take the speck out of someone else's eye. But no one does things like, they don't do these things. Someone, I heard this uh, about two, three years ago, they said, the great sin now in our culture is hypocrisy. They're always looking for hypocrisy, but they're relating it to 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, something you did. That's why when people tell me, you should run for office, I say, no, they're going to go back 42 years and find something I did 42 years ago before I became a Christian, and they're, gonna, and they're up in smoke, there it goes, you know, and so I go, no, thank you. Not that anyone asked me to run for office, okay, and not that I would anyway. So Jesus, um, he's peeling the Band-Aid off, and he wants to heal her. Now, keeping your marker here in John 4, I want to show you something that I use in counseling with people or talking to people or even in Bible study. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. This is a, a real... Um, uh, um, well, this passage, it, it, it works very well, and it gives you insight into how the Holy Spirit works in our life in healing our lives. Now, <clears throat> this is, uh, let me read it, then I'll tell you what's going on, then I'll tell you how it applies. When you're in Nehemiah uh, chapter 13, say, say, I'm there, would you? Yeah. Okay, you're there? Okay, good. Um, verse 4 says, prior to this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God, of our God, being related to Tobiah... Uh, these are not good guys, by the way, uh, had prepared a large room for him. 
who are where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil prescribed, prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. But during all this time, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king. <clears throat> I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. It was very displeasing to me, so I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then I gave an order they cleansed the rooms, and I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. Now, let me tell you what's happening, and let me give you an application of that. While Nehemiah, who is now the governor of Judea, he's got to go back and report back home because he's always been on loan. He's always been on loan. While he's gone, the wall has been rebuilt, but now while he's gone, Eliashib allows Tobiah to come and live in some of these side rooms in the temple itself, because you have these side rooms, they're storage rooms of the grain offerings and the utensils. They take those things out. He lets Tobiah go live in there, which is really, really a bad thing to do. When Nehemiah comes back and he sees everything that Tobiah had done, he gets really upset, and he cleans out those rooms. He gets Tobiah out, he gets all Tobiah's stuff out, and he puts all the things back in that are supposed to be in those rooms. Now, how does that apply to our life? How do I use it when I talk to people, say like a, 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 in the situation with a Samaritan woman or any of us, because I've used it in my own life? That's this. Nehemiah's name means comforter. He's a picture of the Holy Spirit who is the comforter, right? The temple. You and I, New Testament believers, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, correct? So, as the temple of the Holy Spirit, we do have side rooms in our personality. Do we not? Do we not? And in those side rooms, there can be, well, look, we're all broken and we're all fallen. We could agree with that one right there, right? And if you don't, we'll talk to you later after service, okay? But we're all broken, we're all fallen. We all got some stuff in our lives, some more than others. And so Tobiah gets in the side rooms, in these compartments of our life. And he can live in there for a long time. What I mean by that is, Old baggage follows us into the present. So Nehemiah, the Holy Spirit, who loves us a lot, comes along, and he doesn't like the fact that whatever's happened to you, whoever sinned against you, whatever we veered away from God, started making bad decisions, got into this or that, started that wrong thinking process. He doesn't like that stuff in our life, and he comes to clean those things out and restore us the way we were meant to live in our life, right? And so when Jesus, and I've, I've used this illustration or this text with many people and I think it's a real eye-opening text. And I didn't come up with that. Um, back in the 80s, uh, when I started to take hard looks at myself, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Pastor Jack Hayford. Anyone ever heard of Pastor Jack Hayford? Yeah, he, very, very great man of God. And I learned a lot of what I understand by, you know, the baptism of the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, the healing of my past and stuff. I learned from him. I mean, just a load of cassette tapes, cassette tapes, okay, uh, from the 80s that I, I learned from him. And so he's the one that first opened my eyes to this, and it was like, wow, what a beautiful application 
of these verses right here, and you move it to our days as the temple of the Spirit, Holy Spirit, moving our lives and all the baggage of the past and cleaning out those things. When Jesus comes to Samaria, and you can turn back to John 4 now. When Jesus comes to Samaria, now you realize, remember, he had to pass through Samaria. Remember that statement? He had to. Now you find out why he had to. Because of this woman here, and she's got all this baggage in her life. She's got all this pain in her life. So he's got to, he had to pass through there to heal this woman. So I think I've got about six fill-ins for you this, this evening. So here we go. Number one. First thing is, Jesus is God, and God is all-knowing. Correct? Jesus is God, and God is all-knowing. Now look at verse 19 of chapter 4. It says this. The woman said, because now Jesus has now pulled the bandage off, exposed the situation. The woman said to him, Sir, because remember, he told her all about her life. She'd never met him before. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. How many would say, no, duh, right? Like, no, yeah, really? No, you're a, no, no, you think? Now, now think about that. She must be thinking, how does he know all these things about my life? Correct? The reason why he knows is because Jesus is God, and God knows all things, right? He's God, and God knows all things. Now, let me give you uh, some application on that for our life. Jesus is God, and God knows all things. Now, every one of us falls into this trap. How many of you, we all know this, we've been through those seasons of life, we'll have another one in life, God, where are you? How many know what I'm talking about? God, where are you? Don't you see what's going on in my life? Don't you see what's going on? Don't, don't, don't you know? Well, let's take that idea right there because if we don't get truth to that situation, how many know you can start to really go into some doubt in life? Because you're going by what you're feeling at that time versus what is true. Do you remember when Moses climbs up Mount Sinai and he gets to the burning bush and God's calling, right? And, and Moses, do you remember one of Moses' questions to God? God, have you not seen what's, going, what's happening back in Egypt? Your people, haven't, don't you see that? And what does God say to Moses? He says, I've surely seen the affliction of my people, and I've heard their cries. I've seen it, and I hear it. You see, he's telling Moses, look, I know what's going on. And I've always known what's going on. And that's the same thing with our life. I know what's going on in your life. And I know what's, I've always known what's going on in your life. Now, the struggle we have at times is timetable, is it not? God, you got to do it in this amount of time. How many put that pressure on God ever, right? You got to do it in this time frame. And of course, if we set time frames with God, we're probably going to be let down, correct? Because God's not going to operate based on our time frame. Because, you know, we're finite, we think we know everything, but God is infinite. He sits up on the roof, sees the whole parade. We're looking through a knothole and thinking, God, you got to do something now. But we, we don't see the big picture like God. But it's time frames. So let's think of Moses at the burning bush in a time frame. They've been in bondage 400 years to that point, correct? 400 years. Why didn't God do something about that at the 300-year mark? Why did he do it at the 200-year mark? Why not the 100-year mark? Why not after one year of slavery in Egypt, why didn't God do something about that? Why the 400-year mark? Why wait so long for God to do something for God's people? Because that's a big question, wouldn't you think? Well, it is. And there's an answer to the question. 
because God was working in a time frame. In Genesis 15, not in your notes, but you can write it down. In Genesis 15, you find that God is speaking to Abraham when God calls Abraham and Abraham becomes the first Hebrew because Abraham was an idol worshiper before that. He's the first Hebrew. God tells Abraham, and there's the prophecy now. He says, my people will, will be, your people will be in bondage for four generations. And he's pointing towards uh, Egyptian slavery there, 400 years. So now, and side note, now you know that uh, um, that a um, biblical generation is not 40 years, it's 100 years, because it's four generations. And so he says four generations. And then it's going to finish when the sin of the Amorite is complete. What in, what in the world does that even mean? Well, here's what he's talking about. God waited 400 years. He let his people be in bondage in Egypt because he's waiting a time frame out. And the time frame has to do with the people in the promised land at that time while Israel's in bondage. That these people, God is waiting for them to repent. Because what they're doing there among many other abominations is they're sacrificing their babies. Remember we've talked about that? They're laying their babies on the arms of the burning hot idol Molech and the babies scream as they are dying and they're playing drums real loud to drown out the screams of the babies. So God, in His grace and His mercy, allows the Israelites to suffer for 400 years in bondage while God is waiting for these people, giving them 400 years to repent of their sin. Do they repent of their sin? No, they don't. They don't repent of their sin. And so God finally says, okay, I'm going to fulfill the prophecy that I gave in Genesis 15. Time frame up. We're going to get you out of there. Moses, you're going to go deliver them. And when you get to that promised land... You're going to, and God says, destroy that group, destroy that group. And that's where atheists will say, God is a mean God. No, God gave them 400 years to repent. 400 years. And they were killing babies is what they were doing, which really, really puts pressure, I think, in our America with what happens in America, right? There have been 50 million babies killed since 1973, just in America, just in America. And so you have to think about what's coming. I mean, I think like that. I think, oh my gosh, when is this hammer really going to come down on us? Because, and I'm not saying this is true, but I think like this. I'm thinking, okay, I know that God withholds rain when we're in sin and paganism and idolatry. And I look at California, I go, God, is that what you're doing? That's an Old Testament principle right there. And I wonder, I'm not telling you that's why it's happening this way, but I just wonder these things. I wonder that. In America, we're at 245 years, whatever we are now, nearing 250 years. And most, all empires throughout history last about 250 years. And then they go down. And they go down. And uh, they, they just erode from the inside out. And we're watching the moral erosion of America. Amen to that one right there? Okay, let's move on now because I think I spent more time than I wanted to on there. Can I give you a sidebar real quick? Okay, he tells her, I forgot all about that. Um, he says, um, uh, uh, you've had five husbands and the one you're with now is not your husband. Now, Jesus knows all things, right? But New Testament truth is you can also walk in the word of knowledge or word of wisdom when God gives it to you. There's, that's a word of knowledge. You know something about a situation of people that, that God gives you in order to help that per- person, to encourage them. 1 Corinthians 13.8 talks about, uh, is it 13? No, 13.8. 
It should be 12, I think 12, 8. 1 Corinthians 12, 8. It's a word of knowledge. And so you find the principle also in Acts 5. Remember when um, Ananias and Sapphira come and bring the money? And they say, and Peter goes, did you sell it for how much, this and that? He goes, this much. And he goes, you're lying. And because you're lying, you're dying. Remember that story? How does Peter know that? That's a word of knowledge, okay? You see that in the book of Acts. That's an Acts New Testament church principle, truth right there, a word of knowledge. I've been given words in my life from people like, how did they know that? How could they possibly, I didn't even, I've never even met you before, and you gave me this word. These are real New Testament things that happen. Now, let's go to point two. Point two, when confronted, we typically change the subject. Any amens on that? How many are good subject changers? Amen, all right, my, my team. Look at verse 20. Now, when she says to him, I, I perceive you're a prophet, then she adds, our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, look what she does right here. Um, he brings up the relationship situation, right? Right? She turns it into a theological discussion. Does she not? Did you see the spin? Did you see the spin? She'd be a great spin doctor, wouldn't she? Let's talk about the relationship. Well, let's talk about theology. You guys worship in Jerusalem. Uh, we worship over here on Mount Gerizim. So she's throwing a misdirection play at him. She's trying to throw him off. And, and so she's turning the whole thing. And so she would fit right in with America today. I call that a left fielder. In relationships, and hopefully I don't expose you tonight. You're doing this. Then you're going to be healed right now, okay? In relationships, when you're having that talk, you know the talk, right? The talk that men hate. We're going to talk. Oh, not again. What I do now, you know. But anyway, we haven't had a talk in decades, though, because I'm a good husband now. But, <laughs> but I always call it, you throw the pitch. And here comes a pitch. And if you're a left fielder, here comes a pitch talking about a situation, and then you hit the pitch to left field, right? You change the subject. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You change it, hit it to left field. I've used this in counseling so many times. You're a left fielder. Hit it to left field. You take the conversation from here and you're spinning it, misdirecting it. Hit it to left field. Start talking about something completely different. Anybody know what I mean? And then at the end of the conversation, because one of you is really quick with the tongue and the other one can't think fast on their feet. How many know what I mean? It's just true. One of you can think fast on your feet. The other one's like, ah. And so the one thing can think fast, if you're the left fielder, you're going to spin that person's head around, and you're going to send in the left field, and after it's resolved, which it's not resolved, you're going to walk away going, that worked out very well, while the one who threw the pitch in the first place, I want to talk about it, they're going, I don't even know what happened. How did we end up talking about this? And that's a left fielder. So she's trying to misdirect the whole thing right now. But that works with people, huh? Does it work with Jesus? <laughs> no, okay. Now, number three, here it is. She makes it a racial issue, and she does. She makes it a racial issue. Now, do you remember two weeks ago I talk, said, I'm going to talk about this whole racism thing? Remember that when I said it two weeks ago? Well, here's the moment I want to talk about. It. Listen, very closely here, and I'm going to say, if you don't agree with me, fine. I'm going to go home and eat a sandwich and feel good about my life either way. She makes it racial. Look at verse 20 again. Our fathers worship in this mountain, and you people, did you catch it? And you people say that in this, say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Oh, okay. <clears throat> she would make, once again, a great politician and journalist today. 
She says, you people, because remember, Jesus is a Jew and she's a what? She's a Samaritan. Oh, okay. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. You people. And then she adds, our fathers. That's a very important statement because Jesus is going to go after that statement. We'll see that in just a second. So she's saying this. You know we were raised different. You know we have two different histories here. You, you know that, right, don't you, Jesus? <clears throat> That's what she's saying. Now, let me tell you this. If you get something wrong in the beginning, you get everything wrong after that. Did you hear what I said? If you get it wrong in the beginning, you get everything wrong after that. Now, listen closely. Where I've been watching this going on for years and years and years and years and years. And it's intensified the last so many years. This is our society right now. I don't get to talk about it this like, like I'm going to talk about it right now on Sundays because I'm trying to reach believer and unbeliever, whatever political part. I'm just trying. So you understand that part right there? I'm trying to save people. Once I get them saved, then they can believe the truth, okay? But I watch... And I watch politicians, and I watch the media, and I watch social media. All they do is divide humanity. Do they not? No, that's all they do. They say, oh, we're unifying. No, they're not. They're not unifying anyone whatsoever. They're just dividing people. Now, they divide, listen, they divide us on the basis of shade, shade of skin. Let me take it further. They divide us on the basis of shade of skin based on melanin. You ever heard the term melanin? We all have melanin in our skin, every one of us. Every person, I don't care what shade you are, you have the same amount of melanin as any other person on the planet. Everybody's got the same amount. Everybody does. It's, it's a scientific fact. It's biology. Melanin is dark brown or black. The melanin pigmentation. The reason why some people have a shade, their shade's lighter or shade's darker is because you, it's how much melanin that you already have, that everybody has, same amount, is how much is retained in your skin. That's what makes the different shades. And that's all that makes the different shades. Did you guys know that? Did you know it? Did anybody know that? This is biology. This, this, is, this is fact. But with all of it, we're still all the same people. There's just different shades. I'm going to dig deeper on this right now. Did you know that, fact, 99.9% were all the same. 99.9% were all the same. There's one-tenth of one percent or thereabouts. They have differences. And I'll share a difference in a second. In a second. That's why I told you. Make sure you're hearing that, okay? Um, now, look at Genesis chapter 5, because this stuff really gets me, because they don't get it out there. Genesis chapter 5. Now, watch this. So, they divide us on shades of skin, on exteriors based on melanin. Look at verse 32. This is Noah's three sons. Now watch. Noah was 500 years old. Now you're saying, how can somebody live that long? I don't have time to explain it right now. And Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You got that? Say Shem, Ham, Japheth. Okay. Ham literally means dark. Japheth literally means light or fair. 
Shem means the name. Shem, Semite, right? You've heard the term anti-Semite? Shem, that's the Jewish line. The Jews are medium browns, kind of like me. So you have three Noah sons, same mom and dad, dark, medium brown, light, from the same dad, same mom, same family right there. These are the three that came off the ark, and you can follow uh, the, the trail in Genesis of where they all migrated to. You can follow it. You can follow the whole thing as you follow it. Now, they're not going to give you this in political scene, and they're not going to give you this in journal. They're not going to say any of this. But this is foundational stuff right here. So the question you ask is, then why do people look so different? Back up, melanin, retain pigmentation, lighter or darker shades, right? There is no one who is white, no one's that color. You, you hear me? There's no one that color. And there's no one that's black. The black there's no one. No, no one. No one's that. No one is. No one is. Everyone, did you know everyone is brown skinned? Because melanin's brown and black. It's just different shades of brown. Unless you're an albino. Did you know that? That's, that's what science is. Everybody's a shade of brown. Everyone is. So why the difference? Why we look so different? Okay. When they built the Tower of Babel, remember the Tower of Babel? Which, by the way, why do we find from antiquity um, pyramid-like structures all over the world from antiquity? Because the Tower of Babel was probably a pyramid structure. They took their architecture with them as they went through a whole world, as they separated. Does it make sense? Yeah. And about 32 or 33 cultures around the world all have a flood story, which is another evidence um, of, of a flood. But... Back to this whole thing about differences. Once the, the, the um, because they were supposed to fill the earth, remember? And they didn't. They built the tower. So God looks down and says, okay, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. So now he confuses the language. And if all of our languages were confused right now, who would we naturally flock to? The one who speaks what? Our language. And since there were no interpreters back then, and this is the first time there's new languages, what are you going to naturally do with the people who don't speak your language. You can get away. And so now God is forcing humanity to go to different parts of the world. And as they go to different parts of the world and they're isolated because there's no planes, there's no trains, there's no social media, they isolate for a couple thousand years. So the gene pool of that particular group stays strong in that group, right? You follow me? And that's why you get the slight differences. Now, I'm going to give you a slight difference right now because I asked him, uh, to, to come tonight, and he comes anyway. But, but Richard, right? Yeah, that's your name still? After 27 years? Okay, just making sure. <laughs> but we've, we've known each other. He's been coming to New Beginnings for like, I don't know, 20, it's almost the whole time. We joke with you, you're Japanese, right? Unless you've been lying to me. No, I'm just... Yeah. We have been joking with each other for 25 years. I'm Mexican, he's Japanese. After the movie Pearl Harbor came out, we really joked with each other. I mean, we just have fun. You know why we can have fun with each other like that? Because we're grown-ups. In case anybody didn't check that out before, it's not personal. You know why? Because we go back to our foundations. We all came from the same, every one of us. Now, Richard has that one-tenth of one percent slight difference, and he's got the double eyelid because he's Asian. I don't have the double eyelid. I'm Latino. 
okay? But he's Asian. That's one of the slight little differences because the gene pool where he went that way, and by the way, as they migrated this way towards North America, they came from the Asian, the Sinos you see in Genesis, come that way and across, and then migrated down to the Mexican Indian, Mexico, or in Mexico, the native there, and then the Spaniards came across, intermingled, and that's why you get me right now. Okay. You got that? Okay, forget it. Don't worry about that part. But there's these slight little differences, and that's all it is. But we're all 100% the same person. But they're not going to tell you that. They're going to use this whole idea that, oh, you're different, you're different. Let me tell you something. The theory of evolution is one of the worst things that has ever created racism in our country, in the world. Yes, it is. And it's a theory. They have never found one intermediate or transitory species ever from this to this to this. Never. Never. Piltdown man, Cro-Magnon man, Neanderthal man, they're all, it's all been disproven. Every bit of it, every last one of it, it's a hoax. And then the famous Scopes trial way back when, when they, when they brought evolution in the schools, you've ever heard of the Scopes trial, right? You know, that was based on one tooth. They said they found ancient man, one tooth, and they needed a Nebraska man. And that's how they won it. Now, do you know what that tooth ended up being after they kept, it became, they found out that was the tooth of an extinct pig. But the damage was done now. It was all done. They're not going to take that back. You know how society works, right? And so it went that way. Evolution says this, this group, uh, this race evolved from that part of the world. This race evolved from that part of the world. And that race evolved from that part of the world. See how they do it? But it's a theory. There's no proof to it whatsoever. Now, look at Acts chapter 17. Man, I hope I finish tonight. Please let me finish tonight. Will you guys stay so I can finish completely? Okay, thank you. Now, now, so watch this. Watch what Acts 17 says. So we get it straight. Because if you get it right at the beginning, you stay right. If you get it wrong at the beginning, you stay wrong. Watch what God says. Verse 26 of Acts 17. He says this. And he, God, made from what? One man man who? Every nation of mankind to live on the face, uh, on all on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. How many people did we come from? Everybody came from, we came from Adam and then he has right Eve and that's where everyone comes from. You've heard me say it multiple times. If you're married, you married a relative. Distant, but a relative. Amen? Right? That's what you did. That's what you did. And it doesn't matter what shade of skin they are. It's a relative, Okay? Because everybody came from one person. When, so there's no, all, when they say, oh, this race, that race, that's such a lie. There's one race. And all the different people groups are ethnos in the Greek, ethnicities. And that's what they are. But they're never going to say that on TV. They're never going to put that forth. They're, they're just never going to do it. They have the wrong foundations. And Psalm says, Psalm 11.3, if the foundations be destroyed, what will the righteous do? So they throw all the wrong foundations. I'll sit there, watch it sometimes, read headlines, and I'm going, it just drives me nuts. Because it's such a lie. It's such a lie. But they're put it forth, put it forth. Now, let me tell you something. I've thought about this so many times. I've never said it out loud. In public, I should say, I've said it behind closed doors, but since it's more of a Christian group, and, and if you don't like me after this, hey, I'm going to go eat a sandwich either way, okay? <laughs> the truth is the truth is the truth is the truth. And I'm not running for any office after this, okay? Today. Today. 
they make it sound like everyone with real light, light, light skin color is a racist. Am I right? Come on, don't be afraid. That's what they do. You have light skin, oh, you're a racist. I've watched them on TV and programs. Say it. They say it. I'm going, my first question is, how can you possibly know what's in every person's heart? Right? How can you know this? How arrogant to say something like that. You can't know what's in a person's heart. Now, let me show you what the truth is. And this is the truth. I'll use my own ethnicity. Like I said, I'm Mexican, okay? Are there any racist Mexicans? Come on, Mexicans, speak up. Oh, yeah. Do you ever hear about any racist Mexicans? No. Let me ask Mexicans the next question. Mexicans, are there any racist Mexicans against other Mexicans? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, man. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In Mexican world, you get a little bit ahead. Oh, they don't like you, man. Am I right? It's true. But in America, they say, oh, this it's systematic racism everywhere. It's the lighter-skinned people. They're the ones. Oh, no. The truth is this. Is there racism here and there? Sure there is. It's a fallen world. But there are Mexican racists, right? And there are white ones, black, Asian. There's Every, every group has racists in it, right? But they're never going to say that. They're never, ever going to say that because it's a mixed-up, upside-down, crazy, insane world. That's, that is, you know, let me tell you. I've been waiting to get this off my chest for so long. Um, listen closely when you listen to any politicians. Listen very closely. And I'm getting more cynical as I get older. I, I know I am. Pray for me. They will always create an imaginary crisis. Am I right? Imaginary. And they're going to push that imaginary crisis and they're going to tell you, I have the solution. Vote for me. I can fix it. And I'm watching one. That's an imaginary crisis. Why don't you fix the other stuff going on? Which, by the way, none of them can fix anything. We need the Antichrist, to be honest with you. They could say all they want. They could solve something. It's so crazy now, they can't solve it. But here's what they do. And I watch, I've watched this in my life. Whether they're there for two, four, six years, whatever it is, they're going to make the imaginary crisis, and then they're going to be, let's just take the four years, they're going to be in there four years, push it, push it, and never solve the crisis. But then at the end of the four years, i got to run for office again. you got to keep me in there because I'm going to fix the crisis. Have they done anything about the crisis? They've created more crisis. Because you need me for another four years to fix it. And then after eight years, then they haven't fixed anything. And what have they done in eight years, four years, whatever? They got richer, didn't they? That's what they do. And they get all of us out here fighting with each other. That's all they do. I sat there and go, doesn't anybody see this? Doesn't anybody see this? Am I, am I going crazy? What's going on here? They don't have any answers. They don't have any answers at all. N- none whatsoever. Now, so the answer. <clears throat> the question is this. How did Jesus answer the Samaritan woman when she said, you people? What did Jesus say to her? Because what he said to her is the answer, is it not? 
Watch what he said to her. That's point four. She brought up her father, so Jesus brings up his father. Did you catch that? She brought up her father, Jesus brings up his father. Look at verse 21 of chapter four. He says, Jesus said to her, woman, never say that to your wife, okay? That's just... <laughs> woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now, remember she brought up, you people worship in Jerusalem, uh, we worship here in Mount Gerizim. Remember that? Remember that? Jesus is saying, look, physical location of worship is secondary here. This is not the deal, okay? This is not what we're talking about. Now, on a side note before I hit five, because I've got to jump quick on this one. Uh, don't you wish you could think as fast on your feet as Jesus does? Oh, you want to talk about dads? I'll talk about your mom. I'll tell you about my dad. Fast on his feet, man. I wish you could think like that. Now, point five, because here comes the answer. Jesus is saying theology must rule over sociology. Theology must rule over sociology. Theology must rule over sociology. Very important. Now think. She says, our fathers. Does she bring up her ancestors? Say yes. Yes, she does. So she's bringing up history, right? Oh, don't we love to do that in America? Ancient grievances. Let's talk about 100, 200, 300 years ago. That's called ancient grievances. Don't we do that? Were any of us alive at that time? No. I got in a debate with somebody about a month ago over this, and I said, look, the Bible says that the sons do not pay for the sins of the fathers. It's clear as day. And they try to argue that they weren't Christian. I go, no, I go, no. And they tried to bet. I go, no, no. Because, by the way, when you get in a debate with somebody, have them ask them, what's your foundation for what you believe? Give me your basis for what you believe. I can give you my basis. But all they're doing is, I think and I feel. That's all they're doing. Which means they've made themselves what? The God. They go back to Eve in the garden. That's all they've done. They're bringing up ancient grievances. Now, <clears throat> That's what people do today. They bring up ancient grievances. There's no solutions, nothing. So Jesus, to solve the problem, he says this. Listen, listen, this is great what he does. He brings up his father. Because she told him, our fathers, right? Our Samaritan father. She, Jesus says, oh, you want to talk about dads? Here's what Jesus tells her. Verse 21 to 22. Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Is that specific or what? Verse 23. But an hour is coming. And now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In other words, you cannot worship God unless you're in the spirit of God. Which goes back to John chapter 3. Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? You must be born of the spirit of God or else you cannot worship the Father in spirit and in truth. It's an impossibility. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Is that incredible that God is looking for worshipers? Now, notice what Jesus just told her. <clears throat> he said this. You want to talk about dads? Okay, let's talk about dads. He said, lady, your daddy, your granddaddy, your great-granddaddy, your great-great-granddaddy, your great-great-great-granddaddy, your great-great-great-great-granddaddy, and your great-great-great-great-great-granddaddy, 
They're wrong. They're all wrong. That's what he just told her. Did you catch it? He said, they're wrong. Sure, they're great people. I'm sure they're nice. But they're wrong. Here's the issue. Here's the point. Listen closely. Because this is, invades the church and it tries to divide and we cannot let it happen. He's saying, no matter how you were raised, Jim, no matter how Mexican you are, Jim, no matter what your ethnicity, if the culture says something that's opposite what God says, you go with God, not with your culture and not with your ethnicity. Any amens? That's exactly what you go with. Because either God is your father or you throw God away and you go with the culture. On any issue, God is a truth and that's it. And that is it. In this particular case, it is salvation. But in all issues, it doesn't matter what our ancestors did. It doesn't matter what my mom and dad said. If mom and dad said, granddad said something opposite of what God says, I'm going to go with God. He's my father. And it's just that simple. See, that's the right foundation because that's the truth. Got it? And if you get the foundation right at the beginning, you get everything right. That's what they should be preaching because that's what unifies, correct? But you're never going to hear that. You're never going to hear that. And they take it the whole wrong way and they just keep dividing people over and over again. And we just keep biting on that stuff. And they just keep doing it because we keep biting. Now, number six, I'm going to drive it home now. Um, Jesus proclaims himself to be God. Now, Jesus proclaims himself to be God. Look at 25 and 26. Watch this now. Well, I think I need to read 24 too. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. She says, I know Messiah is coming. Jesus says, I am. Look at the verse again. Look at verse 26. When it, your Bible says, I am he, what's he in? What's unique about the word he? It's italicized. It's not in the original. All Jesus said was, I am. What did he just tell her? You Samaritans, I know you believe in the five books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Back in Exodus, you know the story. Moses goes up to the mountain, and Moses says, who should I say sent me? And what does God say? I am that I am. So when Jesus says, I am, she's like, you're the one who Moses spoke to. You're God in the flesh. That's what he just told her. Are you kidding me? Now, number seven, and we're driving, driving home. Jesus delivered her from shame. Jesus delivered her from shame. Now look at 27 to 29, and this will be it. I'll finish up with comments after this. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with the woman. We've already gone through that already. Speaking to a woman in public. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? I wouldn't ask him either. Verse 28, so the woman left her water pot. Remember what she came for? And went into the city and said to the men, 
come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ anointed one, is he, is it? Okay. What did she come for originally? Water. What did she leave behind? Oh, so now we see a visible uh, um, imagery. She leaves behind the very thing that she once thought would satisfy, but she had to keep having to come back. But now she's found something that really satisfies, and she can leave the thing behind that never satisfied completely. Do you follow that? She found you. That's why Jesus says, he who drinks of this water shall what? Thirst again. But he who drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. Never thirst. That's the healing of everyone. If they just submit to it, surrender to it, no matter how crazy our thing is, God, He will bring the true living water into your life. Now, here's the most amazing part of the story. Question, why did she originally go to the well to get water by herself at noon? Shame. Shame. She had no girlfriends. She's going there by herself at the hottest time of the day. By herself. Nobody wants to talk to her. They talk behind her back because she's been married five times, living with a guy now. She's in sin. So she's walking in shame. But look at verse 29. After all this happens, what does she go do? She goes back and tells the whole town, huh? Isn't that crazy? Now, think now. Think. Don't miss what that means. She went back and told the whole town. She said, Come and meet a man who told me everything about my life. What did she tell him? I met a guy who never met before. He told me all about how I've had five husbands and how I'm living with a guy right now and everything else. That's what she's saying, huh? Is she ashamed anymore? Oh, no. Oh, no. It's all changed. She's met Jesus. We would say it this way. We're washed clean by the blood. We're a new creation. Our standing before God is perfect, sinless, and all the shameful things of my past, they are washed away. She tells the whole town about it. And she's not ashamed of anything at all. Meaning this, Tobiah, remember Nehemiah? Tobiah, all the side rooms, remember that? Many of them have been cleaned out. And she's now the temple of the Spirit of God. What happened is this, her shame has become her testimony. Has it not? Never forget, the more confidence you get in being a new creation, you're able to share these things, you have gold inside of you. Share the things that God has brought you from. You'll find that people can relate to that more and more than anything else. Just share it. Don't be afraid of it. And people will say, are you kidding me? No. Your shame becomes your testimony. And you can do that when you have met the Messiah And you're not afraid anymore because you know it's washed under the blood. Amen. We're done. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for this study tonight. Thank you for your truth, God. Boy, do we need truth in the midst of a society that just lies. That's all. They just lie because their foundations are incorrect. Their starting points are wrong. And so, Father, thank you for your word, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray and we all said, Amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCC Norco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.